So as we get into Esther chapter 8 today, I want you to imagine for just a moment with me that um, through whatever series of events um, and shifts in power, I want you to imagine that all of a sudden news breaks that all Christians are going to be killed. Just for being a Christian. And you're even given a date for that execution. Would you imagine that? I know it's hard to get there from where we are, you know, in, in our wonderful country in 2019 with our freedom, but I want you to seriously think about it for just a moment. What would you do? What would you do? Would you, would you hide your faith? There's this thing, there's no, like, you didn't, you know, we didn't give you a stamp or any kind of identifying factor whenever you, you know, became a Christian, right? So you're going to hide that? You're going to maybe even renounce it? Would you try to escape the country? What, what would you do? I think at the very least, our perspective would change, right? On life in general, perhaps, you know, what's important and what, what's not important. Um, but then particularly, I think our perspective would change on our faith, Right? Like, we would be forced to answer some tough questions. Like, do I, do I really believe this? Is it worth my life? What do you tell your kids? You tell them to stand fast? Or maybe to try to survive it, you know, get out of it? By pretending, or, you know, renouncing. What, I think this is... Um, Again, as crazy as it is for us to try to imagine in our context, if we pay attention to current events and you know, recent world history, that we know that there are countries even today where this is still pretty close to the reality, right? We know, like, I've got friends, and many of you, many of you heard from a missionary who spoke last spring for us, and um, they're getting back on a plane in the next few days to head back to the Middle East where um, many people are friendly to him, but where one of the people who just became a Christian not that long ago is, is, is being persecuted by his family, being, um, has already been beaten. And, and so anyway, you, you, just, you know that tension. If you're honest with yourself, that exists in the world. And then honestly, man, the Holocaust is not that long ago, right? Like it's not that long ago in the grand scheme of world history and so, this is the tension that the people here in Esther's story have been living in. And the tables have turned, right? And, and as you saw in the video, in the summary, like the enemy, Haman, has been killed. Not only, we talked about last week about how the, the reversal of uh, Haman hoping to be honored by the king and ended up having to do that to his worst enemy, the guy he hated and wanted dead, um, Mordecai, which was a funny story. But then we didn't uh, preach through all this in, in chapter 7, but... That, that reversal continues, as you saw in the video, to the point that um, the stake or the gallows that Haman had made for Mordecai ends up being where he himself gets put to death. And so that has happened, and the enemy of God's people has been done away with, and yet the sentence of death still stands in reality. So the resolution isn't complete. Um, and it's this, real, it's this reality where they've been in the, in the, the, the uh, despair, the hopelessness, the sentence of death that they have felt that's going to inform their urgency as now salvation comes and they're sent out to 
uh, declare that and to, for that message to spread, it's this reality that they felt already that informs the urgency that they, they go uh, forward with. So I think for us today, man, it is easy for us to just get disjointed and, and think, man, that this was a really long time ago, you know, and this being most of the scriptures and, you know, just it, it's, it's ancient. And then we think about, okay, we know that, that Jesus has promised the end is going to come and, and what that looks like, but we, that seems like it's really far away. And we tend to think about, you know, what's, what's going on right now in my life, my, you know, small uh, portion of history is, seems to be the most important in most of our minds. And so it can be difficult to relate back and it can be difficult to kind of translate the urgency that the scriptures compel us with. And so uh, that's what we, we're going to hope to accomplish today as we uh, walk through this story pretty quickly and, um, and try to apply it. So um, as you saw in the video, um, that's the, the place of the, the, the climax of the story has kind of happened. The, uh, the enemy, Haman, has been put to death. And now, though, there's still this uh, death sentence that has been decreed, and the king can't just go. Oh, I didn't mean that. Like in in this uh, day and age, the law of me of the of the day was that man. Once this king makes this decree, it is it is irrevocable. It cannot be undone, and so that is still the reality that is in place. Even though Haman is dead, and Mordecai has been spared for the moment, that day on the calendar is still coming, and so that's where we pick it up, and and we see that the same day where uh, Haman is you know put to death on the gallows that he made for Mordecai. King Ahasuerus, which is, uh, we're going to call him Xerxes, is, is one is his Persian name, one is his Greek name. On that day, he gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai, so everything that belonged to Haman, he says, hey, Esther, this, this is yours. I'm going to give it over to you. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. So if you remember um, the, the whole story of Esther becoming queen, um, she gets entered into this beauty pageant. Her adopted father, Mordecai, tells her not to tell that she's a Jew, right? Um, and so there's this, they're living in this mystery. There's, King doesn't know Esther's a Jew, and then she doesn't, he doesn't know that. Now, Morde, now it's been clear that Mordecai's a Jew, right? That happened earlier in the story, but the relationship between the two has not, hasn't been revealed up to this point. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the whole house of Haman. So the, the position of power that Haman was in was really second in command. Vice president, if you will. But this is, you know, this is a kingdom, uh, a very vast and, and powerful kingdom. And um, Haman had made himself up to you know, second in command. Well, Mordecai takes his place and the same authority with which... The, you, what you get from this is the king doesn't like to make a lot of decisions. He, he's really big on delegating. And, um, and so a lot of times guys will come to him and ask him, he's like, yeah, yeah, just, just do it, that's fine. And he gives uh, the signet ring of authority, he'd given it to Haman, and that's how this decree that all the Jews were to be killed, that's how it came into place, is because the king gave Haman that authority. So um, Haman is now where he belongs, on the gallows, and the, the ring that has the authority of the king is now given to Mordecai. So Mordecai comes from um, this place working you know, for the king at the gate. Now he's in this position of power, number two, uh, second only to the king himself. <clears throat> so here's the question. What are they going to do? So now we have Esther, orphan, orphan girl, Jewish girl, humble beginnings, gets the place of queen. She's been there for several years now. She's chosen to use her. She's already put herself out there to tr- save it you know, her people. And now Mordecai is given this position of authority. And, and the question is, what, what are they going to do with it? So no doubt, like, their lives are probably safe now. Like, the king is, is not going to let them be killed. 
Like some, something will happen. Like he'll, he'll come up with some idea so that they, they can be saved. But, but the, the question is, do they just look out for themselves? Like do they, do they go to the king and say, okay, now this, this day's coming where all Jews are going to be killed. Like, hey, can we get an exemption from that? Or do they choose to leverage the, the, the place of, of authority and influence that they've been given and the resources they've been given to try to save all the Jews? Verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet. And again, this is not, you don't just walk up to this guy with the request. You remember that from the story. Um, she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose. Okay, so that's his sign of, okay, I, I will hear you out, right? I, I'm not annoyed with you to the point I'm going to kill you. In fact, you can give me your, your request. So he holds out the scepter. She stands up. And she says, if it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if this thing seems right before the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, uh, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are all in the province, or who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the, cal- the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman. So the authority that I've given him, I've, I've handed that to her. And we've hanged that joker on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king. And seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So in that, you hear both the problem and the solution in that they, they can't just say, oh, I didn't mean that one and, uh, you know, everybody's good and the, um, you know, Jews get to live. That's been made. It cannot be revoked. And so the king says, listen, that's already been done. But the same authority that I gave Haman to do that, I'm going to give to you guys. Write whatever you want. Sign it with my ring and get that message out. Save the Jews however you see fit. So, the king's scribes are summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. This is a crazy reality to think about, like the amount of time between this edict, this you know, command given by Haman that all the Jews are going to be put to death and that it's like 11 months out when that happened. Like, that's crazy to think about that tension that is building and the people that, like the Jews have enemies in the Persian Empire and they've been given permission now to get their swords ready to do away. Like it's like, um, you know, there's, there's, this is ethnic and racial tension in this, in this day and, you know, many, peop- many of the Persian people didn't mind the Jews at all. In fact, we heard that whenever this decree went out, many of them were distressed and overwhelmed with grief. But there are, Plenty, i.e. the Agagites, which we'll talk about a little bit later, that have always been enemies of the Jews and are excited about this opportunity to get rid of them. And so that tension has been building. These people have been sharpening their swords, and the Jews have been knowing that their day is coming and knowing really that they're helpless against this decree from King Xerxes. So they can't just do away with that. But he says, okay, the same authority is given to you guys. And so they uh, call these guys together. Um, still a few months away, but you've got to think about this is a huge kingdom. Some estimated around 3 million square miles, 127 provinces. It's basically the, the, the known world, India to Ethiopia, like over to Greece. And it's just such a huge span of land. And this is not like, um, you know, you just 
send an email and you can reach, you know, millions of people and boom, all that, you know, you know, or you submit it and everybody sees it on the news and it goes viral within a matter of moments. This is not the age in which they live, right? To get information out takes a long time, right? And, and the Persian Empire is really groundbreaking in their day, in their system of uh, basically mail carrying, but man, it's going to take a while. So it's, it's on the third month, they call these guys together. There's urgency here. They've got to make a plan and get it out before uh, the day comes whenever the Jews are supposed to be done away with. So they're going to write it in every language. Like, this is intense too. They're going to make sure every person can hear it and, or every person can read it in their own language and in the Jews uh, in their own language as well. Verse 10, And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. Why? And it's urgent, right? Like this is this cannot be like this has to be varsity team. This has to be the fastest that we have. This is urgent. If if this message doesn't get out, feel the weight of that. If this message doesn't get out, then the blood of the Jews will be shed. Like, and this is not just like if you remember, this is men, women, and children. Like they are to be put away. So there's urgency here, and he sends them out to take this message saying that the king, verse 11, had allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of the king of, of King Xerxes, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy was written and, and was issued by a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service and rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Now, quick side note, by no means is the point of the sermon, but uh, we kind of make a commitment here to preach through books of the Bible. And um, what that does is kind of lets the Bible drive the, the topics and things we talk about, and sometimes that is not fun for your preacher, just so you know. Um, and so if you're, on, you're taking an honest reading of this, sometimes we're just kind of programmed to, you know, read weird stuff out of the Scripture, going like, I don't know why that's, an, I'm just going to ignore that and go on to the stuff that's really, you know, go back to the Beatitudes and the things that are good, feel good and whatnot. And so we don't always know what to do with passages like this, but I don't know if you caught it, but the decree there was for the Jewish people to kill all their enemies and women and children included. So that's, that's tough, right? Like, we've got to do something with that. We can just write it off and go, okay, well, that was Old Testament God, and he was angry, and he's not anymore, and so, you know, sorry about that, but he's not like that anymore. Or we can just go, well, I'm just going to ignore it. Or we can dive in and, you know, try to teach it and understand what was going on in that moment. So I just want to give you just a quick, in case this is you, like, if you're here and you're checking out Christianity for the first time, I don't want to just glaze over that, and you're going, wait, what? Like, that, like I'm out. If that's, that's the deal, like, I ain't signing up for that. I thought these were all nice people. Little did I know they've got that kind of agenda. So there's some context for you to uh, know about, and we'll, we'll bring some peace. So I just want to say a, a few things about that, um, because there are, you know, there's lots of points in the Bible that need some clarity, and this would certainly be one of them. And so here's a couple things I just want to point out. So, so first of all, this edict is, is an exact reversal of Haman's command, or of Haman's edict earlier, earlier whenever the Jews were, be, uh, when the Jews were to be uh, executed. If you remember, it said... Every Jew, right? Men, women, and children. And so, so there's that, that precedent of our, has already been set of like complete annihilation. And so in a lot of ways, this new um, edict that, 
Mordecai and Esther are putting out with the king's authority is, is an exact reversal of that. And so in some ways, that is kind of, just, like, kind of explaining the language. Uh, but then secondly, when you think about the people that are now going to still be eager to have this fight. So no longer, so before when the edict goes out, what is said early in the chapters is all the Jews are to be put to death and you're going to plunder all their goods. And he basically motivates a bunch of mercenaries. He says, you kill, like make sure they're all dead and you take all of their stuff, you keep half of it and give half of it back to the king. And it's a good day for everybody. So there's motivation there of, the mercenaries to, to kill this, right? And, and really there's this authority from King Xerxes where nobody questions him and so the Jews can't leave. They don't know what to do and there's this, there's this tension here. But now it's been, it, the, that has all swung the other way. No longer is Haman in power and making these kinds of commands to where everybody's, you know, like in respect of him. Now it's Mordecai who everybody knows is a Jew. He's the one in power. And this new edict has come out and said, hey, Anybody who tries to attack the Jews on that day, I give the Jews full permission to put them to death. So I want you to think about the people that are still eager to do that. Because no longer is it about money. No longer is it about, like, now it's just whoever's got that agenda and is really excited to pick a fight with the Jews and, and, and kill them. Like, there's some, there's some baggage there. There's something else going on. There's an enemy factor there. And I, and I think probably most of them would be traced back to people like, Haman, who is the Agagite, who is uh, part of a group of people who have always been enemies of God's people. From the very first time we hear about them uh, in the scripture, uh, they are opposing God's people. And we see in, in I think it's 1 Samuel 12, where, where God tells uh, King Saul to get rid of all of them. Because if he doesn't, they're going to continue to be an enemy and coming and opposing what God is doing in the world and God's people throughout history. Well, Saul gets rid of a lot of them, but not all of them. And that's how Haman is even... We talked about this earlier in the series. Haman's not even supposed to exist. Had God's people obeyed what God had said to do, Haman doesn't even make it on earth. Right? But because he did, there's this continued thread of enemy from God's people. And so, so there's that piece of like, this is, God, this is an enemy of God's people that are opposing God's people in a violent way. right? In violent, terrorist-like ways is, is the kind of people that are going to be uh, affected by this command. And so knowing that, we have to step back and go, okay, God's laws, and, and God, the Bible says that God allows governments to come into place and their authorities to come into place to really um, hold back evil, right? To, to prevent evil from taking over the world, to, um, to restrain evil is the way the scriptures put it. And so therefore, their armies and wars are sometimes necessary to that end. So it's part of the context of what's happening in scripture. And then secondly, you should know, like, this command's a one-day self-defense command, right? It's a one-day, it's not just a blanket, hey, go kill whoever you want, Jews. It's a one-day, and it is against any who might attack them. So this is a self-defense situation. This is not a, uh, a blanket, just go out and kill whoever you want. This is, this is very much self-defense. And as we know, you know, if you've studied even modern, you know, issues of war, if you talk to soldiers who have been on tour in the last few years, there are plenty of sick and twisted people and people groups that will use women and children as weapons and as shields, right? So there, there's, there's a lot going on here. I think some people could just take that verse out of context and go, see, Christians are bigots, God's crazy, there's no reason, you know what I mean? Like, and that happens a lot. 
People are going to attack the scriptures without understanding the scriptures and try to use, them, use that as, a, as an agenda to write Christianity off. And you need to be able to uh, dive a little bit further into the scripture, into the context, and know what's going on here. That this is a self-defense issue. This is not a blanket. This is not just this genocide that is set to happen uh, without any president or any reason. Um, and really, um, if you keep reading, as we will next week, you find that there's actually no record of, the, of any women and children being killed. There's several men that try to attack the Jews, and they get, they get put to death, but the Jews don't plunder them. They don't plunder, and that's usually what would happen. The men would get killed, and then you know, the army that you know, has, has taken them over will rape their, rape their women, take their children for slaves, that sort of thing. That, that's common in this, type of, this, this point in history, and we don't see that from the Jews. Yes, they defend themselves, and there are several enemies that they do kill. We'll look at that next week, but there's no record of them killing women or children, and they don't even plunder their goods. So there is, you've you got to keep reading, basically, is kind of the, the big idea, and you've got to zoom out and take an honest look at the Scripture and, and do a little bit of study. And so that was just a, a quick side note. Again, I don't want to make that the point of, of our scripture by any means. I want to finish up here and just make a few notes. So verse 15, and then Mordecai. So the horses are sent out. And again, I want you to think about this. They're in Susa, the citadel. This is where all this happens. And so that city's going to find out first, and then it's going to, in you know, progressive ways, the carriers are going to go from province to province. So there's people that aren't going to hear about this for months that are going to continue in the tension of knowing. Like, they probably got their first letter not that long ago knowing that they're going to be put to death, right? And now they're in that, that state of, of waiting and tension, and it's going to be a while before this message gets to them. <clears throat> Verse 15, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes and blue and white. So he's got his promotion, right? Like, so everything's changed. Haman... Everybody's seen him, you know, be killed in his own backyard. And now Mordecai comes out in the robes that once belonged to him with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy amongst the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the people or from the peoples of the country, listen to this, declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So th- this has shifted completely to where now not are people geared up to fight and kill the Jews. Now they're actually um, scared of the Jews, right? Mordecai's in power. He's a Jew. He's the one with the authority now. And in fact, not only are people, you know, before I got I to think many people are trying to, that are Jews are probably trying to hide that fact. Now there are people who aren't Jews are saying, hey, I'm in. I'm on y'all's team. Like, don't, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be against you guys. Clearly, God has done something in this that, that people start signing up and joining the Jewish uh, people. So, here, here's the deal. The story of Esther is an incredible story. And, it, and we're, we got two more weeks left in it. And, uh, man, there's just, it's a rich book. It's a unique book. Again, God, God's name's not mentioned. There's an incredible story in here. Esther becomes an incredible hero who rises from a point of being an orphan, right? Both of her parents are killed, they die. We don't, we don't know exactly how they die, but Mordecai, his, the dad's cousin, steps in and raises her, does, a, does a, you know, an okay job. He's, a, he's an okay guy. He's not a real great father. He doesn't step, step up and stop, but she, you know, stuff has happened. She ends up winning this beauty pageant, ends up the queen of Persia. It's crazy. She doesn't belong there, but there she is. 
She lives there for several years, but not telling anybody that she's a Jew. Like, all of this has happened. And then God uses this moment of crisis to sober her up. It seems as though she repents. She surrenders her life and begins to use her life and what God has brought her through for the good of other people, and she becomes a hero. But the story of Esther is not meant to uh, just have a stop there and admire Esther. right? In fact, it's not even meant to, to make her the hero. Esther and all of the stories in the Bible, whether that be David or Solomon um, or Gideon, and just fill in the blank, they're all made to point us to the ultimate hero. They're all there as shadows of the greatest hero of them all. So Esther is, is there to point us to Jesus himself. Like the whole book is about the movement of God and, and headed toward Jesus. And so there's, there's this factor of, okay, what, what do we need to learn about Esther? What, what is God teaching us about his greater story and about his own character through the book of Esther. I want you to think about the, the message as it goes out. So people have received this edict that they're all going to die, right? That the Jews are done. Like this is genocide given um, with firm authority from the Persian throne. They've had that moment. I don't know what that feels like. I don't know what conversations happen with families and, and what preparations happen. I don't know how you live in that tension. I want you to think about now the next rider rolls into town and he's got a different set of news and he's in a whole different state of urgency as he says, hey, actually, actually, salvation is here. Actually, the tables have turned. There's been a reversal and there's a different set of news. Your, your condition is no longer fatal. There, there is hope. I want you to think about what, what starts to happen. What conversations are they having? Listen, they don't know Esther. Like Esther's not a famous Jew that becomes... The queen, right? The king doesn't even know she's a Jew. Sorry, so you start to think, what are they talking about? What's the conversation? It's like, what, how are we being saved? What happened? What was the, what was the narrative? And no doubt um, the news of Esther being a Jew and Mordecai, like all of that is spreading. And I want you to think about the message that's happening as they're, they're telling one another. And they get that message and they go to tell their friend and their neighbor and their, their parents, their grandparents and their kids. And all of this is happening. And they start to tell the story of Esther. Esther who? They don't even know she exists. Well, she was this orphan girl that ended up on the throne and she laid down her own life. She put her own life at risk so that they could be saved. I want you to think about that moment. I want you to think about the reality of that news being shared. And here's the deal. The story of Esther represents the, the reality of humanity on a larger scale. Because the truth is that God's people are in a sentence of, our, of their own making. And by God's people, I mean like God created us, humans. He created us to be in relationship with him, to be made in his image, and to live as the people of God and him being their God in this rich relationship. And yet we as humans, have made a mess of things. We've rebelled against the King of Kings and we've gotten ourselves sentenced to death. Yes, we have an enemy. Yes, he played a part, but ultimately we've got our own selves in the sentence of death. And we, the reality is that humankind is without hope if someone doesn't intervene. And just like in Esther, there's a story of an unlikely savior. That a world is, is lost, that the wages of sin is death, and that all have sinned. It's not that some are good and it's all going to get, you know, if you're good enough or if you make the cut, then, you know, you'll get a pass from your sin. No, like the Bible says there's no one who's good. There's no one who seeks God. 
all have sinned and the wages of sin and what we earn from sin is our death. So that tension, that urgency that we talked about feeling, if, if that were to happen and what, what they felt here in this story, like that's a reality for all of humankind. But again, it, that's like we know it's a reality, but we all think we have time, right? We think we have time before we die. We think we have time before our loved ones die. And so we don't live in this tension, in this reality. But it is just as urgent and just as dire as it was for them in the reality of our world. But there is an even greater story of an even more unlikely Savior, Jesus of Nazareth. You mean the guy, like, you mean the guy that was born in a, in a manger? Yeah, that guy. Didn't his mom claim to be a virgin? Yeah, she did. She was. Didn't he just work as a carpenter for the first 30 years of his life? Yeah, he did. I mean, I heard about him doing some miracles, but I didn't know he became, yeah. Like Esther, he, you saw from Esther that she pleaded, she laid herself before the king in verse 3. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him, pleaded with him. Like we see Jesus lay himself down before the Father and say, me instead, me instead. The decree from God the Father that, that sin must be punished, that all sinners must endure the wrath of God. Like, that can't be undone. God can't just say, oh, I didn't mean that. You know what? You guys get a pass. Come on in here. It can't be undone. He's a just God, and his decree is even more firm than that of Xerxes. And so something had to happen. The wrath had to be poured out, and Jesus says, pour it out on me instead. Poured out on me. And so he climbs on the cross and he endures the wrath of God. And in that moment, there's the greatest of exchanges, the greatest of reversals, where he takes the sin of the world. He has no sin. The Bible says he made him who had no sin to become sin so that we could experience life and salvation. Like he had no sin and he takes ours on himself and he endures the wrath of God being poured out on the cross on that day. And he experiences the pain that only you and I deserve to experience as he's separated from his father in that moment of enduring our sin. He's dead. They bury him. Three days later. We know the story. We know the story. We get so used to it. Remember, our lives are on the line. And he just died, and that's confusing. We don't know what that's going to turn into. But three days later, the whole thing shifts. Right, The whole story is reversed. The, the script is completely redone as he comes back to life. And he, like Mordecai, is exalted to a place of authority. But this is no just minor moment of authority. He is exalted to the place, the right hand of God, where he sits today holding the scroll containing the Lamb's Book of Life. Like He has ultimate authority, and he is there. And he has sent his people. He has sent messengers into the world to go and tell that, yes, death is imminent. Yes, Death is what you deserve, but there is a Savior. There is salvation, and his name is Jesus. And he sends his disciples. After his resurrection, he sends his disciples, Matthew 28. Like we all know the Great Commission. He sends them out to go and make disciples and baptize people and, and teach them to, command, to obey everything that he command in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And from 
from here and then right from where they are and then the next region and the next region all the way to the ends of the earth. That's the, the commission of Jesus. Much like the, the, the officials here in Persia say, you've got, to take it to every, you've got to take it to every person, every province, every language. Everybody needs to know this news. It's important. It's urgent. It's dire that everybody knows this. Make sure it's written in every language so that no one has an excuse. Everybody can get this news. And Jesus sends his disciples out in the same way. I want every people group to hear this news that Jesus is the Savior. And we have translations that have gone to thousands of people groups, and there's still thousands yet to go. But there are, there are people laboring to that end, and we are in the midst of that. We'll talk more about that next week, the kingdom of God advancing in our day. But that is very much the same position that we are in. So we've, so if you're here and you're a Christian, you've been saved, right? Like you, you've got, like you have, you, you should have, you have a peace that, you, that your death is no longer standing before you as something you can't get out of. Instead, Jesus has put himself there and has offered you life. And you have this, right? You have this pardon and you have this life. The question is, like Mordecai and Esther, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this moment? What are you going to do with the the knowledge that's been given to you, to this gift that has been given to you and to me? What are we going to do with it? Are we content to just go, you know what, I got mine, this is good, and if somebody asks me, I'm glad to tell them, but what are we going to do with it? Because the reality is we've been sent out, and we have uh, so much more urgency than they did in this day, like because lives and eternity depend on it. So often we want to just kind of sit back and, and wait for the Esther of, of the story to kind of, you know, do the work of God for us. Like we think that it's going to happen when this person is elected or when this person comes to this place of power or when this moment, you know, when these laws are passed. And we just kind of sit back and we think, okay, this is how the kingdom is advanced. This is what we should be laboring toward. And all the while, as we talked about a few weeks ago, God has us in a place on purpose. Right? He has you living where you live Working where you work, going to school where you go to school, playing the sports that you play. He has you having the friends that you have and the, going to the gym that you go to and, or the dessert shop, whatever your jam is, right, that you go to like on purpose. The Bible says like it's not accidental. Like his sovereignty has placed you where you are in this time in history for a purpose and it is to make much of the name of Jesus and is to declare that salvation has come. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with the salvation? If, you, if you're here and you're a Christian, then praise God for, for the work he's done in your life. Now what are you going to do with it? Are you going to go and tell others? Are you going to be willing to share the good news of an unlikely Savior to your coworkers? And yeah, I get it. I get it. That the, the urgency doesn't feel quite the same, right? That, that there's not this decree and we feel like we have time and all those things. But here's the deal. Everybody still knows that death is coming, and everybody still feels the ache of there's, there's something more to this world. Like, the people you encounter, they all know that something's not right, right? That things aren't the way they should be. No matter what their theology is, no matter what they've thought before, everybody knows that things aren't the way they should be. And so we have the message of hope to say, yeah, I get it. I've been there. I know exactly what you're feeling, and here's where I found hope. 
And I think a lot of times we think, oh man, we need to get you know, evangelism, we need to have these classes and get trained, and maybe that's only for the preacher, only for this person, the missionary, blah, blah, blah. And, and listen, evangelism training is good, and we should all know how to share the gospel, but I'm convinced that, that the, the reason most people don't share their faith with those that they're around is not because they've not gone through an evangelism class. The reason most, most of us don't share our faith with the people we're around is fear, right? Because we don't, we don't want to, you know, look stupid. We don't want to offend them. We don't want to look like the religious person. And, and, and all of these things are, are rooted in the fear of man, right? Like that we have more fear of our reputation and what's going to happen, what we're going to look like than what's going to happen if we don't tell them and what their eternity is going to look like. Like we have that flipped. And that's why the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. When you understand that God is what matters and that where we stand with God is, is, is very much in a place where we need to be pleading with him, Right? And we have no hope without Jesus Christ, and he's given us hope. And so now we stand in a place that goes, okay, I know that the only thing that matters is God. It doesn't matter what this person thinks of me or what that person thinks of me. And actually, because I love them, I'm going to tell them this, whether they want to hear it or not. I'm going to declare the gospel. I want you to think about it. As we close, I want you to think about the people in your life that don't know Jesus that are not followers of Christ. I want you to think about them. I want you to actually think about people, not just people in general. I want you to think about faces and names, relationships that you have. Who is it that you should be laboring over in prayer? Who should you be sharing the gospel with? Who has God put in your life? And you're like, I know, I know I need to. Who is that person? Who are those people? Maybe it's even your kids and your family. Like, it doesn't have to be this, you know, unreached people group. Like there's people who need to hear the gospel, maybe in, even in your household. And let ask this, what's stopping you? What's stopping you? What's the excuse that you tell yourself? And we all have them. Like I, this is for me, to, like I've been totally crushed by this this week. Because I just get comfortable, right? What's the excuse that you tell yourself? Why you don't speak up? Why you haven't? Uh, brought it up to them, why you haven't invited them to church, why you haven't challenged them, why you haven't shared the gospel with them, shared your testimony with them, why haven't you? What's the excuse that you tell yourself? Now I want you to answer, I want you to actually answer that and think about what, what are the excuses when you, when you put yourself in that moment, like imagine yourself talking to them, now what rises up in you? What do you what's the self-talk? What, what are the reasons that you're copping out? Now, I want you to answer this honestly, would that excuse matter if you knew it was a life and death situation? Would it matter if you knew that they didn't have time? That their number was about to be called? Like that it was a life and death situation? If you knew they were going to die, would you get over your fear? Would you get over not having been trained in evangelism or not knowing the exact... Right? I think you'd just share it, right? I think you would just say, you've got to know about Jesus. I'm going to close with a story from my own life. I was uh, a freshman in college and um, I, was, I was doing some ministry and doing this Bible study, and God was kind of blessing it. It was kind of fun. I was like, okay, this is like, I was trying to explore what that was. And, um, and me and one of my friends had started talking about this other friend of ours that we, God just kind of burdened us for. We went to school, all through school with him and um, knew him pretty well, and, and um, we just started getting burdened for him. And I'm thinking, okay, we need, to, we, need to, we need to start inviting him to Bible study. We need to start witnessing to him. We just need to start spending time with him. And that happened one week, and I don't know how many days passed in between, but I woke up, 
I woke up one morning to my mom telling me that he had died in a car accident the night before. And listen, that's hard enough, like just losing a friend, somebody you went to school with. But all, like immediately I was crushed by the weight that I had not shared the gospel with that. Immediately is what came to my mind. I had no reason to believe that he was a believer. I, I thought that now he has lost his opportunity because I was not obedient. I didn't have any urgency about it. I thought that I had time. There's no reason to think that a 19, 20-year-old young man was going to, like, there's no reason to think his time was up. But I lost that opportunity, and I was crushed. And for days, I, I just I wept over that, and, and me and my friend were just kind of just broken and just this feeling of regret and sadness. Now, I go to his funeral, and um, the pastor of like the church where his family went to is, is preaching, and it's a generic funeral sermon, and I'm just kind of just crushed and not knowing, and, and then uh, they say they, they have a, another speaker to come up and um, to share about Zach, and um, up comes this younger guy, and he starts to tell the story of how he's the youth pastor of Zach's girlfriend, and how Zach had started coming to church in the last few weeks, and had started to ask questions, and how just a couple weeks before, Zach had prayed to receive Christ as his Savior. And that was, man, so much God taught me in that moment. Like, I was so rejoice, like rejoicing that uh, amen, it didn't, it didn't depend on me. God still got, you know, Zach's soul in that moment. But, but man, what a sobering thought it was that I thought he had time. I didn't live with any urgency. I thought, yeah, I need to get to that, right? So we don't do this often at the journey where we're just kind of bringing that sort of sobering fear about us, but I, listen, I, I think the text lends itself that way. Like, this is life or death that these writers are sent out with to go tell the good news of an unlikely Savior, of Esther saving their lives. And Jesus, man, the message of Jesus to a broken, lost, and dying world is far more urgent, far more pressing than we ever give it credit to. And so I want to I just end with this. I want to challenge you to think about, to pull that person back up in your mind who God's placed in your life. Who's your, just maybe just one. Who's your one? Who is it that you, that you're just, that you want to be saved? You've been praying about maybe already or you just know, okay, that, like I, I have no doubt that God's calling somebody to mind. And if not, you need, to, you need to get out around some more you know, non-Christians. But, but I have no doubt that God's calling somebody in your mind. I just want you to have them in your mind. And I want to challenge you to bring them to the altar this morning. I want you to pray for them this morning by name as we respond. And more than just praying for them and then feeling like you've checked your box, I want you to pray for yourself. And I want to challenge us to surrender ourselves as missionaries, sent out to the people that we live next to, work next to, recreate, next to, go to school, like that God has sent us out. I don't challenge us, church, to lay ourselves down and surrender to this great mission that 
Christ is reconciling the world to himself. We become ambassadors to that end. Let's pray. God, we don't deserve the grace you've shown us. We don't deserve forgiveness and life, and yet you have given it through Jesus Christ. Forgive us for taking that selfishly, for taking that for granted, and for keeping silent. Help us, Lord, to feel the urgency that is before us of people that are dying all around the world having not heard the name of Jesus. Lord, would you call people to mind and would you give us the courage to follow you as you lead us to them? Would you do a work in and amongst our own hearts this morning that it would begin with us, that we begin even to see revival starting here in this place this morning? that we sit here with the news of abundant life as a world suffers and wonders what life is about and tries to squeeze as much out of it as they can before death comes we have the hope that they're longing for the message of Jesus do a work in us it's in Jesus name I pray